Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Sherry, today we have Marnie Sullivan joining us. Marnie is a yoga teacher, retreat leader, a realtor in Sun Valley, Idaho, and mostly just an amazingly awesome person. I had the opportunity to meet Marnie last November when I attended one of her yoga retreats in Mexico, and she calls them superstar retreats, so she kind of had me read at the title. I just thought she would be an amazing guest for our podcast. She has had a really interesting life, lots of ups and downs like the rest of us, um, but mostly I just love her spirit, and I wish you guys could see her big, bright, shiny face. So I'm super excited to welcome uh, Marnie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. So Marnie, we're going to jump right in. Like I said, you've had a little bit of an interesting life, lots of twists and turns. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about your journey. Tell us, you know, sort of how you've gotten to where you are now, some of maybe the aha moments you've had along the way, anything that sort of defines who you are. Thank you, Anne. Oh my goodness. I was reflecting on this in the middle of the night last night. I was awake between two and five. I guess is, um, I don't know if it's being 50 or menopause or what's happening. I've thought a lot about writing my story and I thought, oh, my story, I have this, like all these different relationships that have connected and woven together that have brought me to being 50. And I thought, well, I've also lived quite a lot of places that can be another story and a path that gets me to this point. And then I was thinking, oh, I've had a number of careers that have led this point. And so when I think about telling my journey, I think, wow, where do I start with that? Yeah. That's what kind of came up for me. And I thought, oh, I got to write the book. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to have to have you back on when you write that book because that'll be a good one. (laughs) Yeah, I would love that. So as far as place goes, I think place has been important to me. I was born in Seattle and I'm fourth generation Seattle on both sides of my family. Oh, wow. And my parents, from how they've told it to me, there needs to be a caveat because my mom says there's no good story unless you embellish the story. <laughs> and so I, I like her already. I went through, I, yeah, interviewing my mom would be amazing. I went through my 30s and 40s. I was like, was that true? Was that part of my life true? <laughs> Not sure. Mom told us. <laughs> So I remember my parents saying they were young, they just graduated from college. And my dad, I think, had an opportunity to work in Idaho. And they thought, gosh, they'd been in Seattle their whole lives with all of the family. Let's get away and have an adventure. And so we moved to Sun Valley when I was two years old. Mm. And all my first memories on the planet, because I don't really remember before two very clearly, I remember the bright stars and the mountains and the clean air and a small town then. And I had parents that were in love and together. And Mm. I just had this very yes experience as a young person. Yeah. And I think that's really informed my, my person. I think there's of course something we come in with our own spiritual path and our our print and these karmic things. And yet my earthly experience was a lot of yes, was a lot of it's okay. And it's okay to be yourself. And that sort of, um, I think helped give birth to my current philosophy, which anyone that's traveled with me or practices yoga with me or is in my world knows is I say, be free. 
And I try my best to embody that. And I catch myself when I'm not. Mm. What does be free mean to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about this too. I mean, a lot of my friends joke, oh, it means like take your top off or be naked. Because <laughs> you know, like well, that's what's going to happen. Not always. I don't want anyone to not come because I just said that. But- <laughs> <laughs> I, for, for the record, I did take my top off and it was totally cool. <laughs> for me, it means be yourself. Like be yeah. as true as you can to yourself. And be free in that expression. Try not to hold yourself back and be free to take a risk and be free to be true and be free to love. And I actually think of Rumi who is inspires me to such greatness. And Rumi said, gamble everything for love if you're mm. a true human being. If not, leave this gathering. Half-heartedness does not reach into majesty. Wow. Wow. That is so powerful. And I just want to jump in for a minute because I want to go much further with what you're talking about. But when I hear you say that from a very early age, you felt very free to be yourself and to open yourself up to all these experiences. And for so many people, and I would put myself in this category for many, many years, as I'm sure many of our listeners would, it's this struggle around, well, if I'm totally authentic, if I'm totally who I am, what will other people think? And what will be the implications? And then the other part of it that I hear you saying is you've had a really healthy relationship with shoulds. And I know you've only been talking for a couple of minutes, but that you haven't been schlepping a whole bunch of shoulds with you throughout your life. And again, that is what so many people struggle with. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit more about how that has played out in your life, how you have been able to navigate your life without getting hooked in the ways that so many of us get hooked. And I've probably been hooked a lot. I'm still shedding shoulds, if you mm. I'm, I'm absolutely, I, I, I really practice catching myself. And with all this, yes, I was a straight A student and I was a cheerleader and I was going to go to college and I embraced Catholicism for a while. Many things that have a lot of rules, the way that things should look or should be, you know, so in that way, I think from the outside, I looked maybe more regular. I don't know if anyone in my life would agree or more (laughs) through those earlier years. And I think when I was around 18 and 19, I started deconstructing all the shoulds and all the structure that I'd. Mm. And I remember my older brother, he's just so brilliant and a great philosopher. He's still alive. I don't know why I'm crying because I love him so much. Mm. And I remember him saying to me once, we needed to subvert the dominant paradigm. And I thought, <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> so we just had all these great conversations. And when my grandfather died, tragically, actually, my mother's father took his life. He was a mm. beautiful mind man and he was bipolar. And when he took his life, I was 18 years old. And he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a little bit left. And my mom bought us your rail passes and tickets to Europe. And my brother and I spent the summer backpacking around Europe, my second summer out of high school. And we read great books and we met lots of people. And this was, again, part of what I was referring to earlier. It was me just shedding. Like, that's when I decided, 
hey, there are a lot of ways to look at the world. Oh, I hadn't heard about reincarnation. Oh, or yoga or all these different philosophies. And I, you know, I shed being raised Catholic and I realized even more, I can be who I want to be. That was an incredible gift. That was a really important part of my life. Yeah. And I don't even remember what the question was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, I think you actually addressed it, right? Because Sherry was really asking about not carrying the burden of a lot of shoulds. Mm -hmm. And I think what I just heard you say is actually I had a lot of that. It's just that there were a couple of moments that gave you some ahas into the fact that you were actually carrying them around and that you had the, I don't know, the will, the ability to release some of them. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like just the act of kind of tromping around Europe, which I did the same thing. And I just, such an amazing time in my life that woke some things up, but I still think there's something, I don't know if it's in you or if you had a specific experience because other people could have that experience and see it like a lot of nice cathedrals and go to great museums, all good stuff as well. But there was something about that, perhaps your grandfather dying and then having this kind of sort of freedom of of exploration. Talk to us a little bit more about that. What do you think that woke up in you? What, what was it that allowed or facilitated some more freedom coming from that? I was writing a lot. Mm. I actually wrote almost every day of my life up through my twenties and my thirties. And I actually still have all those journals from that trip. Mm. I don't have all of my writings because I was writing a lot of letters back home to my boyfriend at the time. (laughs) And when we broke up the next year, he burned all my letters in the (laughs) process. And that was one of those. Okay. Luckily, I'd also written journals, but I wrote a lot of my writing to him and mm. I gave them to him. So that's, that's his right. But I was, I was pissed. I mean, it was a bummer. <laughs> yep. Of course. So I don't know if it was the, the exploration of the conversations and the writing. And I think my journeys have been more, I've traveled a lot around the world. I've had the good, yeah. and I've gone a lot of places. And for me, place ends up being the, about the people. For example, I've been to India twice and haven't been to the Taj Mahal, or I lived in San Francisco <laughs> for seven years and haven't been to, what's the island with the prison? Alcatraz. I can't even say it. Yeah. For me, I can just slide right into the people is what's rich for me. I, I lived in Guatemala for a while and I lived with a family and mm. that my strongest memory is all of like celebrating the birthdays with the family and buying them peanut butter and going on walks. And, or when I lived in India, I lived with a family. Like for me, the, mm. the people, relationships, I think is, I don't know, place, relationships, but it, I think that's yeah. important to me and how I grow and how I hopefully help other people grow. Yeah. You know, the phrase that went through my mind while you were describing that, and I'm not sure if this is going to make sense or not, but is that you fully inhabit your life as opposed to observe. I mean, I'm just hearing you say that you just get immersed in the place and the people and you don't have a whole lot of interest in seeing the sights. And so there's just, there's something that's so immersive about the way you are describing your life. I'm definitely a risk taker. I was reflecting on that about how I want to go out and feel where is the boundary in my be freeness. Mm. And the universe has definitely said, oh yeah, you reached one. Here it is. Boom. <laughs> there have been a couple big ones that I was reflecting on about my risk-taking and my ability to say, hey, I'm just going to 
quit my job and move here or do this or do that. And as I know you both understand from the little bit, I know about both of you is those have been my greatest learning moments. It's not the joy and the excitement and the bliss of this be freeness, but the really, really hard, challenging times that I've come up against because I'm willing to take so many risks. Yeah. Can you tell us about one of those risks and maybe something you learned from it? Yeah, I was, I was, I was reflecting on this. I was like, which ones? (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think one of the most significant ones in my most recent life was actually 10 years ago. I was single and living in San Francisco and working. And I really wanted to be in love and I really wanted to have a child. I always thought I'd have children. And I was traveling for business and seeing quite a lot of live music around the country and following my favorite band around, which is widespread panic. I've seen over 250 live shows. Of widespread wow. Wow. All over. And I just connected with this amazing man. And we just, we had such a connection. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting. Are we supposed to like do business together or make a life together? Or why are we meeting? And Uh, We decided to be together and I I left my job and put all my things in San Francisco into boxes and shipped them to New Orleans. And I moved to New Orleans and we were mad love and going to make a family. And I don't know, this is this a part of my story that sometimes I get a little bit uncomfortable about talking about, but we were able to get pregnant, which was so exciting for me and turned out to be quite scary and terrifying for him. I had to leave that situation because I wasn't feeling really safe. I had to make what I I think probably was the most difficult decision of my life this far to terminate that pregnancy. As much as I wanted to have a child, it was my greatest desire at the time. And like, yeah. I didn't feel safe and I didn't feel like my child would be safe. And that was really heartbreaking because I was really in love. And my boyfriend lover at the time, he it was really obviously challenging for him. And I'm not sure exactly what happened for him emotionally and mentally, but two weeks after I terminated the pregnancy, he took his life sort of in my name, in the name of us and our great love. And then how things were falling apart. And I've been very quiet publicly about talking about it because there were a lot of other people that loved him greatly. And there there were a lot of hard feelings. There was a lot of judgment I was judged pretty terribly and completely, I moved in with my brother and his family and he shut all my social media down. So I wouldn't be, get a really terrible time. And I really went inside for a long time. I didn't work for a long time and I didn't think it'd get any worse. I just felt like, wow, I am so broken. I am so broken. I wanted the child. I wanted the love and they're both gone. And I just was like, how am I going to pick myself back up? How, how do you pick yourself back up from that? But I did, <laughs> um, but not alone, certainly not alone. I mean, it took a village really to help pull me up. And I could, I mean, I could tell story after story after story about all the different people and the ways that they helped save my life. And I remember my mom saying to me, I know I've referenced my mom a lot because she's amazing. Because, you know, she'd survived her father's suicide, right? And she said to me, you are not leaving us. You also will not die. You have to stay with us. You have to choose to live. 
I was so close. I mean, I was in so much pain. I really did consider taking my life. Like I didn't know how to, how to navigate this pain, that level I'd never experienced. So I took those words from her and I started hiking a lot. I set a goal then. Uh, my dear friend was guiding trips up Mount Rainier. And I thought, well, I'm either going to become an alcoholic drug addict or I'm going to start hiking and try to save my life. And I ended up hiking Mount Rainier. And then uh, I didn't feel comfortable participating in any of the services um, or memorials that happened for my partner. I was still feeling very judged and and I didn't know how I fit into that. And one of his friends sent me this very small urn of some of his ashes. Mm. And he said to me, you should take him to India. So that was my second time in India. And I took my backpack and I put his ashes in there, put the urn in the backpack. And I remember I was sitting in like Texas or somewhere on my flight by myself. You know, I was sitting like at a bar in the airport and these men are sitting on the benches next to me like, what are you doing? And they start kind of hitting on me like, where are you going? What are you doing? Like, well, <laughs> I'm taking my dead boyfriend to India. <laughs> I've heard some good ones to shut shut down the vultures, but that, that's a new one. I didn't even buy my drinks after that. <laughs> it was so incredible because I'd been, I actually had been starting to take Xanax to calm myself down over the six months prior. And when I got to India, I didn't even know really know where to go. And somebody said, oh, go up north to Hardwar. And that's where people put ashes in their Ganges. And I met a lot of characters that just helped me through this process. And the day that I released Marcus's urn into the Ganges, I felt his energy, our energy is just this lifting of energy. I saw the trees move and I felt this lightness and I didn't take Xanax again. It was so amazing. It was such a healing moment. And that's when I found yoga nidra. Probably some people are not familiar with that, but I also teach yoga nidra. And that's how I helped just really realign myself and calm myself. And then I had two months traveling in India where I said yes to everything. I said yes to every invitation to go to the caves with the babas, to go to the taxi driver's home for dinner, to hiking in the Himalayas. And that was were probably the two most obvious healing moments in my life. What I love about what you're saying is you had this just unspeakable, horrible tragedy on multiple levels. And there wasn't just one thing that could solve or fix or change. So you had your your time of really going in and I'll call it your survival time. It really says to me how important it is that we are willing to go there with our people and are willing to say the things that are on our hearts and in our minds to the people that we love, because you just don't know what is the thing that is going to, to really help. I've told the story before on the podcast, but I'll tell it again. When I was going through my divorce, Sherry called me every single day to make sure that I was, it's making me teary now, it's to make sure that I was okay. And I just want to reiterate how important that is that we we share those things with the people that we love. Mm -hmm. I'm sure other people said other things to you and maybe they landed, maybe they didn't. It doesn't matter. Like, right. But sharing those things with the people that we love and really letting our hearts be seen mm -hmm. 
because I think sometimes we don't know what to say when somebody's in the face of so much tragedy. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just add on to what you just said, Anne, which is so, so important, is it can be easy to get caught up in not knowing what to say or feeling like you're going to be intruding or that you're going to piss somebody off or any of the other things that go through your mind. And always coming back to this thought, it's not actually about me. It's about how I want to support this person. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. Mm -hmm. And as I'm listening to you tell your story, Marnie, which is so filled with so much light and freedom and a lot of really deep, dark suffering. You started with, you had a very yes experience as a child. And as you were talking about your mother's conversation with you, that was a whole different level of yes. That's right. Right? Like, yes, you are going to get through this. Yes, you are going to survive this. Right? Yes, you will be okay. And it's easy to hear the first part of your story and imagine you've sort of floated above it all in your life, right? I'm free. I go where I want to go. I follow kind of, I, I follow the fun stuff, but mm. that's not it at all. To tag on to what you were saying lately, uh, my mantra has been to lean in. I try my best to model that for the people around me and to teach it to people who maybe haven't had the experience yet, because I feel like after having such great loss, and sorrow, I recognize that in other people. I recognize when someone's going through a divorce, somebody dies in their family, something very difficult happens. And I watch the tendency of some people around me to step back and, oh, we should probably give that person space. And I said, Hmm. "Mm, my style is going to be to lean in until they ask for that to be different. And I'm going to send a card. I'm going to show up at their house. I'm going to go to those memorials. I'm going to take the extra time to go drop off some bubbles at my friend's house who's going through a divorce to send the text message. I'm not afraid of the grief anymore. Yeah. I think before I had that great loss, I don't know, maybe somebody in the past would say, yeah, you weren't that awesome. I don't know if I was that great at it. And yeah. now I'm like, I want to teach that to people because what else are we doing here as human beings? What else is more important in this? Po- this is back to me in relationships again, right? That around me, that's what's really important. And my amazing friend, Lori, Lori lost her son at 21 months old. And that happened before my tragedy. And I met her two weeks after her son suddenly died. And I said to her, how do you get up every morning? Like, I can't believe you're just not on the floor in a puddle. Like, how is it? She said, you just get up and you just get up every day and you just every day, just curl your hair, drink your water, like walk through each day until it gets brighter and brighter. So when I was in my really dark place, I would think of Lori and I think if Lori survived the loss of her young child, I can survive this. Well, it goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about just the impact, right? So Lori, you didn't have a tragedy at that time, and yet she was modeling for you. And whether it's Lori or your mom or the cab driver in India, I think miracles are happening. Magic is happening around us all the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. But I guess what part of what I'm saying and the invitation to our listeners is to 
to kind of like be open to it, like to be in a receiving mode almost, like to expect it a little bit, right? Like these magical things can happen at any moment. Mm -hmm. And I think really being open to allowing those things in is really where some of our work is. Because it's pretty easy to shut those things off, especially when you're in that really sad, sad space. Mm -hmm. I know this is some of the work you try to bring into your yoga classes as well. And so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, you just shared one really tragic experience in your life. I know there are others. And you said, you know, you want to practice leaning in with folks. And so how are you doing that in your yoga classes and your retreats? How are you modeling that or bringing that in, that out in others? When I start practice, I sit quietly and I usually play some music. And that's, that's why I love how people come in and they chat and they connect and I like to facilitate community and then people start to realize, oh, it's getting Marnie, Marnie sitting with her eyes closed. And then people slowly start. I don't say anything. You know, I just wait till the room is very quiet and we're all breathing. And at that time, I, f- I feel into who's in the room. Mm. You no, know, I check it out a little bit visually. And then when my eyes are closed, I just feel the energy of the room. And I honestly don't decide what I'm going to say or what I'm going to lead or guide till I feel who has shown up. And then suddenly I can be like, oh, someone in here is really sad or Mm. there's a lot of joy in here today or there's a lot of chattiness or uh uh-oh, there's some tension and I feel it. And then I wait and then I just listen and then I say what comes to me. I just naturally say it. And this has not always been the way I've been leading yoga practice for 20 years. And sometimes it was scripted, sometimes not. And now I just absolutely stay open to the present moment. What is going to come through me and what needs to be said? And then in the middle of class, I might joke. I'll say, oh yeah, we're going to hold camel pose until somebody cries. (laughs) (laughs) Coming from somebody, you know, it's been even such that I'll put my hands on somebody's feet and I can like feel their sadness or they need an invitation to go to Mexico or they need to go to coffee or they need to be held. And there have been a lot of students, I don't know, they just start a grieving process in my class. And then I just try to hold them through that for over a year or two years or whatever, five years, whatever that process is. I try to pay attention and I am totally present when I teach. I, hmm. It's so incredible. It's the best gift also selfishly for myself, not thinking about my work and my family and dinner and all the things that we all have as human beings. I just am present with myself and my students and what a gift to all of us, really. Well, and what you're describing is such an incredible description of truly holding the space for whoever is in the room. You know, I've had people occasionally ask me, what does what does that actually mean to hold the space? That just seems so airy-fairy, right? Like, what is that? Although I do think it is now the phrase is used on a more widespread basis and people understand it more, but what you are describing is kind of level 10 of holding the space, you know? And that's such a gift for people. How did the yoga journey start for you? There's lots of yoga teachers, but I've been in your class and it is a really special experience. So tell us a little bit about your yoga journey too. When I was super, super young, I felt this magic of the world. As a really young girl, like 
whether the word was angels or fairies or God, or it all seemed true to me and all made sense, but there was no real good story for it or explanation, if you will. And then when I was introduced to Catholicism around, I think around 10 years old, I thought, oh, here's a story to put on all these incredible feelings I'm having. Hmm. And I was really into praying and I felt really connected to God. And I, it was just this, I had this incredible experience. And then when I moved through that, like I shared earlier and sort of deconstructed the, the Catholic story that wasn't working for me anymore, you know, I studied astrology and energy work and just all different things, read about all different religions. And then when I was in Thailand, when I was in my late 20s, was I 30 yet? Something. I was right around 30. I was traveling with a girlfriend and I was introduced really to meditation for the first time. Like we were on beaches, sitting in circles, you know, all different types of meditations. It's so interesting. And this new friend we met named Juju, she was German, but lived in San Francisco. And she said, Marnie, you know, we can go to Beverly Hills and for $5,000 become yoga teachers with Bikram and we can travel <laughs> around the world and teach yoga. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't have $5,000. She said, I don't either. Cause I would, you know, I'd quit my job and was spending my last dollar in Thailand. I said, let's both go find $5,000 and let's meet in Beverly Hills in a few months. <laughs> well, I found $5,000 and she didn't. <laughs> and I went down to Beverly Hills for two months and started studying with Bikram. I started, it was like 12 hours a day. It was really intense. And for whatever it's worth and for all of the different choices Bikram has made in his life, those two months for me were a really great gateway into asana yoga, into learning really the postures about really cleansing my body and learning to be very comfortable in an intense way teaching. And then after, you know, I taught hot yoga for a while and then it always emerged. My yoga was always more for me than the body, you know? And yeah, I was very fit and physically fit, but for me, it was more important. What were the benefits I was getting that were mental and emotional? Yeah spiritual. And I started studying all different types of yoga and yoga philosophy. And then I went and spent some time in India and I did my first 10 day sit in silence in India. And I was just gone on and on from there. And now when people say, what type of yoga do you teach? I actually, I don't claim any particular school or style. The be free yoga. <laughs> yoga. Yes. Man, you should trademark that. (laughs) You are talking about this very deeply spiritual side of you and this almost otherworldly side of you and yoga. And you also have this whole other part of your life as a realtor, which is in a very different domain. Mm -hmm. But because you are also describing like you take all of you everywhere you go, right? And into everything you do. I'm really curious to see how all of this also plays into your work as a realtor. (laughs) I love that you brought that up. You know what? I was so into our conversation. I forgot I was even a realtor. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, even though I know the podcast, we're not shown our images, right? But I was thinking about dressing this morning to meet with you both. And I was like, now, should I wear my sparkly unicorn cape? (laughs) Should I wear my really nice black suit? And then I thought, do I put the glitter on my face? Do I put the on my third eye? Uh, when I was writing a lot of poetry, I wrote this poem 
a thousand me's beneath my dress. And I contemplate that because I, I could show up in so many different ways. So share what I try to do is show up who I am absolutely authentically and honestly. And I get excited because I love people to find people what they want. So somebody says, Hey, I want, you know, this, this type of condo, or I want to live by the river, or I want to do this. I'm like, great, let's go get it. Let's go find it. And then the competitive part of me is like, cause our market is so on fire and there's so much competition and like, okay. And then how do we win it? And <laughs> I love that. I really, really love it. And I've had an incredible first year. I just jumped right in and hundred percent. And I've just been dedicating myself to learning this now new career going into my fifties. And it's also because I love place and I love people Yeah, and I love magic. It's just a really incredible merging and I find it really fun. And it's a way that I can generate more abundance and more financial freedom in my life and in my family's life. Yeah. And that was really important to me. I, I decided last year, I was like, I have to turn this game around. Our market was going up and we were in rentals and I looked at my partner, my fiance, and we were like, we have to buy a house. I was like, oh, we have to buy a house. Well, how are we going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> go to real estate school. And then I'm going to win that offer and win that. And now we have this really sweet family home that we bought this summer. And now I get to do that for other people. You know, it's so interesting how we really started the conversation with you. I don't want to say struggling, but you were really thinking about, is it about people or is it about place? And really, like, it's such a merging. I mean, your whole life has been this merging of people and place. And I mean, what the sense I get from you is the place ultimately kind of doesn't matter, and yet it facilitates these magical experiences. And so, I don't know, I think that it is, even the way you talk about, like, the listeners can't see, but Marnie was kind of like rubbing her hands together. Like, <laughs> how are we going to find the perfect place? And and there's, so there's something here to me that just makes all the sense in the world of how you're bringing your worlds together. So one of the things I'm curious about, Marnie, is, is when I think about little two-year-old you moving to big open sky and bright, shiny stars and, and whether it's at two or older, you know, whenever, if you would, if you could give that little Marnie a piece of advice or whisper something in her ear, what might you tell her? Mm, that's such a great question. I would say something about the universe always has your back. When you leap and take risks and jump, you'll always be supported. And it's not always going to look pretty or look like you think it should look, or maybe you hoped it would look, but your life path will be absolutely what it needs to be and will be perfect on your very long soul journey. And be free. <laughs> be free. <laughs> of course, that has to be part of the advice, right? You have shared so much in this not very long conversation that I know is going to really touch a lot of our listeners. And I have heard Anne tell so many great stories about her time at your retreat and how much she just kind of fell head over heels in love with your energy and your style. And so it has just been such a treat to get to meet you. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. It's just been an absolute delight talking to you. And 
With that, we will wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. Big announcement here, you can now find all our previous episodes of the podcast at flowingeastandwest.com. So check it out when you have a chance. And please join us next time for Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey to a Fulfilled Life. Thank you.